a topic of great interest to all of us, and that's the topic of pain. How to understand it, how to relate to it, how to use it. Our relationship to pain is well expressed in one of the stories of Mullah Nasruddin. It seems he was traveling back and forth between Turkey and Persia. He was making this journey very often and slowly amassing a great fortune. Every time he came back into Persia, across the border, the customs people would search the saddlebags on his donkey, looking for jewels or drugs or whatever they smuggled in those days. They could never find anything. Nazardine would go through. Reports are circulating about how wealthy he's becoming. He's making all this money. Again, back and forth. And every time he stops at the border going back into Persia, they search and all they find is the straw in the saddlebags. This is a great mystery to the government officials. After some time of doing this, one of the customs people retired and met Nasruddin in the marketplace and said, now you can tell me what you've been doing all these years. I'm not with the government anymore. How is it that you managed to amass so much money? Nasruddin turned to him and he said, well, I was smuggling donkeys. We, we relate in somewhat the same way in our practice. We're looking in the saddlebags of our mind, right, for the jewels or the cosmic flashes, you know, or the sudden illuminations. And actually we're missing the donkey. We're not seeing or appreciating or relating skillfully actually to what's happening in each moment because of our desire to see something special. Pain very much falls into this category. We think that the purpose of meditation is to somehow get rid of the pain so then we can meditate and then we can get enlightened. And we're missing the value that we can derive from that experience. There are different kinds of pain that come to us in our practice, in our lives. And it's helpful to differentiate them because different of the kinds of pain require different responses. One kind of painful sensation is a danger signal. If you put your hand in fire and it starts to burn, you don't particularly want to say burning, burning, burning. (laughs) There's a message coming to us you know, danger, withdraw hand. And I think most of us are fairly familiar with that kind of pain. It's basic common sense. Another kind of pain has to do with unaccustomed posture. You know, especially those of you who have just come, perhaps some of you who have been here for a while, 
are still getting used to sitting in a posture that we don't usually use as often or frequently as we're doing here. So there's a quality of stretching out certain muscles and strengthening certain ones. There's some discomfort which comes from that. The third kind of pain is the most interesting one. It's the kind that can be the most revealing to us in terms of our understanding and practice. And that's the pain of accumulated tensions and knots. Throughout our lives, because we haven't been totally mindful in our lives, (laughs) we accumulate tension as a result of our reactiveness of mind. Every moment of grasping, of clinging, of attachment. There's a tension involved in that, and that tension is stored. In every mind moment of aversion, or condemning, or judging, or disliking, hatred, anger, there's tension in those, in those moments. That tension is stored. Through our lifetime, as you've been experiencing, either in the short or long time that you've been here, there's been this tremendous accumulation of deep tension holding patterns in the mind and body. Mostly, in the course of our lives, we're unaware of it. You can be walking down the street of any city and see people with their shoulders almost touching their ears, and yet if you ask them, are you tense? No, you have any tension in your body? No, feel fine. It becomes so much of a pattern that for most of us it's invisible to us. Until we sit still, until we slow down, and begin to sensitize ourselves actually to what's going on. So a lot of the pain and discomfort that we feel in the practice is actually a coming into touch with a deeper level of our experience. It's as if we begin to become aware of the energy patterns in our body, those patterns of holding We begin to feel often for the first time the depth and the intensity of those particular patterns. Then what does the mind do? As we become aware of the pain and the tension that's there, how does the mind relate to that? It has a few responses, very conditioned, habituated responses that aren't so skillful. Not, not very helpful. One of the responses that we get involved in as we're sitting feeling the pain is self-pity. Poor me. Poor me. Everybody else is in bliss. <laughs> and I hurt. And my back hurts, my neck hurts, my legs hurt. And the mind just gets lost in that kind of self-pity it doesn't lead any place. It just creates more tension and more pain and more tightness. Another kind of response, perhaps even more common and mm, stronger, is that of fear. 
very often in the face of pain, in the face of feeling it, there arises a real fear in the mind. We're afraid to feel pain. Often. What is fear? What's the manifestation of that on the energy level? The manifestation of fear is contraction. Right? When something's there and we get afraid, you can feel the whole body tighten. What happens as we tighten? Ties the tension in even deeper. Ties a new knot on top of everything that we're carrying. And so it's not a skillful way to actually relate to the pain to open to it, because it just makes more of it. So if these are the conditioned responses, our habits of mind, what are the possibilities for relating to pain, painful feeling, painful experience, that in some way is conducive to the process of opening, to the process of liberation? The first step in relating to pain skillfully is to take a very direct look at what pain is. Pain is a cover word. It's a word, it's a concept that we use to describe certain experiences. Very often the mind gets frightened simply by the concept. Even if we have a vague impression of something and we label it pain, just seeing the word in our mind is enough to cause us to try to avoid it. So we have to go underneath the concept, underneath that word pain, to see actually what it is. What's the experience that's going on? What do we find? We find that there's an experience of certain sensations. It's the manifestation of of the physical elements as sensations in the body. And the sensations may be very intense, it's true. What kind of sensations? Burning, stabbing, throbbing, pulling, pressure, tightness. Whole range of sensations that we feel When we come to the actual sensation level, what happens is that the solidity of the concept, my leg hurts, or there's pain in my knee, that solidifies, that makes something solid and unchanging. When we drop underneath that level to the sensation, to the experience of the sensation, even though the sensations are intense, they may be very strong, we begin to penetrate past the solidity of it, past the concept of knee, past the concept of pain, past the concept of self. We begin to experience the, the vibratory quality of that energy, of the throbbing or the stabbing or the burning or the pulling, whatever it may be. What that requires is a close attention to bring the attention just into the sensation, not looking at it from a distance. Because if we look at it from a distance, in the space between the awareness and the sensation, there's room for a lot of concepts to form. 
concepts of pain, concepts of self, concepts of me. When we're just close, when we're close into the experience, all those concepts dissolve. When the attention is close, close in to the sensation, what are the attitudes which help the mind to actually open to it? If fear is not helpful and self-pity is not helpful, what is? The foundation of working with these sensations, with these feelings that are unpleasant, the bottom line attitude is one of acceptance. To be allowing for those sensations to be there, to be accepting of them rather than resisting or rejecting them. Because it's the rejection and the resistance which simply tightens the system more, creates more pain. Being accepting, being allowing, being soft, it's softening the mind, it's relaxing into the sensation rather than pulling away from it. Painful feelings are actually a wonderful object of meditation precisely because they're so intense. When you have a strong pain, your mind doesn't wander very much. It's right there. It can be very highly concentrated. We can get enlightened with pain as the object. But what it takes is that softening into it being a very very accepting. There's one story of my teacher Munindra in Bodhgaya when a few of us were sitting around a chai shop, tea shop, and one of our friends was having a very bad headache. Munindra comes along and he asks how we're doing. His friend says, oh, I've had this headache for a day or two. It's very painful. And the ninja turns to him and says, Oh, I hope you are enjoying it. Can we enjoy our pain? It takes practice, it's true. But it's possible. There was one time, quite a few years ago, I was in California, and I was sitting in a friend's car in the middle of the front seat, and I had my arm over the back of the seat. Somebody else got in and closed the door on my finger. It hurts so much. It hurts even when I think of it now. (laughs) (laughs) I can just... It was so painful. And it was at night, and it didn't seem anything to do about it. And so all night long, there was this intense, intense pain. It was hard to imagine that one small tip of the body could cause so much pain. And it was a very interesting process for me that evening because for quite a while, I was up all night, there was not a moment's sleep. For a long time, I was just with it and watching. And it was so intense, it was rather easy to watch. 
my mind was was soft and allowing and balanced, and I got so incredibly high. My mind got so concentrated. It was like the state of bliss surrounding that very intense pain. What happened around three or four in the morning was that I started getting tired, and I lost that quality of acceptance. And my mind started reacting then to the pain. And there was the self-pity, and then there was the fear, and the suffering got worse. And it was a very interesting example of how the pain remained the same. The pain was exactly the same, but the attitude towards it totally conditioned the quality of the experience. When I was soft and open and accepting, it was fantastic. When I was resistant and trying to avoid and push it away, then there was a lot of suffering. So it's not pain that's the problem. It's in how we're relating to it. And it takes practice, which you've all been doing now for quite a while, practicing softening, practicing accepting. You see, over a period of time, as those of you who have been here a while have seen, that actually our tolerance for what we can accept, the limits of what we can accept, really accept, get much, much enlarged. What's difficult the first few days of a retreat, at the end of a couple of months, is nothing. It doesn't, doesn't even cause a ripple in the mind. This process of accepting and allowing is the healing process for the mind and body. If you think of this, or experience it, this mind-body as an energy system, which, which basically is what it is, what's happened is that because of how we've lived our lives, there are a lot of knots. It's like the energy is tied up into knots. With this space of acceptance, with this space of allowing, what happens is that these knots begin to untie. Not that we are untying them. They untie themselves when we create the space for them to do it. It's somewhat similar to fasting. Now, when we fast from taking food, what happens? We stop taking food, we stop putting things in, and then the body starts releasing the kinds of toxins or poisons that have been accumulated. We may not feel so good in the process, but it's actually a process of cleansing, of eliminating, of releasing. The meditation is what Chuang Tzu called a fasting of the heart. We're not putting stuff in through our reactions, through our attachments, our condemning, our greed, our hatred. We're fasting from that. That is, we're settling back with that quality of openness and allowing what's there to manifest, to come to the surface. And in that process, these energy knots begin to release. So Vipassana, in this sense, is a tremendously cleansing process. Tonight, mostly, I'm speaking of it in terms of the body. It's the same process that's involved with the mind, 
the kind of knots that are in the mind and the opening of them. It works in the same way. Letting go by letting be. Now, in spiritual disciplines, we hear so often about letting go. Let go of the pain, let go of the attachments, let go of this, let go of that. And in some ways, that's misleading because the letting go, there's a suggestion in that that there's something we have to do. And so people always ask, well, how can I let go? There's no one that has to let go. Much more, it's a process of letting things be. If we can let things be, they let go of themselves. Everything is changing all the time. If we don't obstruct the process, if we don't block the process, if we simply let things be, this natural healing takes place. It's a natural unfolding. What happens very often? What prevents us from this letting things be? Often it's an anticipated fear of discomfort. Fear of discomfort feeds into our desire system. A couple of years ago, I was sitting in England with some Burmese monks, Mahasi Sayadaw and some of his disciples. And every morning, I went downstairs for breakfast. And they had oatmeal and toast and tea and fruit. And I went down and I took my oatmeal and two pieces of toast and tea and fruit. I started eating mindfully. And after I finished everything except one piece of toast, I was full. I put the second piece of toast back. The next morning I come down, and what are they serving? Oatmeal and toast and fruit and tea. I take the oatmeal and two pieces of toast and fruit and tea, and I eat. When I finished the first piece of toast and the oatmeal and the fruit and the tea, I was full. Put the second piece of toast back. Third morning I come down. What are they serving? Oatmeal and toast and fruit and tea. Take my oatmeal, two pieces of toast, fruit and tea. After the one piece of toast, I put the second one back. Fourth day, what are they serving? Oatmeal and toast and fruit and tea. I go through the line, take my oatmeal, two pieces of toast, food and tea. And I was watching myself do this. Somewhat in disbelief, although I was pretty used to the fact that minds generally have no pride. <laughs> and there was ample, ample experience of that. It took a week 
of going through that line until I could not take the second piece of toast. You know, and I saw that there was, it reflected a pattern which I call the just-in-case syndrome. <laughs> just in case I'm hungry, you know, I'll take the second piece of toast. Just in case, you know, they don't put out peanuts in the evening, I'll take the second helping. Just in case, I'll be tired tomorrow, I'll go to sleep early tonight. You know, and we live our lives anticipating that fear of discomfort, that fear of insecurity of some kind, binds us, feeds the desire system, and so we get caught up in that cycle. A lot of practice has to do with being okay, getting okay with being uncomfortable. That at times, discomfort, whether it's painful sensations, or tiredness, or feelings of hunger, at times in our practice and in our lives, unpleasant feelings are going to arise. Can we learn that that's okay? That we don't have to live our lives doing everything we can to avoid those feelings, because then we tie ourselves in knots. We build prisons for ourselves. Working with pain, opening to pain, to discomfort, begins to open up a whole range of experience in our lives that previously we've been close to. Now, as winter comes on here, there'll be some wonderful opportunities to see how you can open to the intensity of discomfort. <laughs> there are some days when it gets really cold, you know, arctic cold. As an experiment, sometimes just go outside and be watchful of how the mind relates to it. The first tendency probably will be to contract, you know, and to close off to it, not to want to experience it. See if it's possible to open to it. Just to go out on a really cold day and breathe deep and open to the experience of the cold. Be accepting, being allowing of it. It's a totally different experience. And it's so much a model for how we live our lives. That is closing off to experiences, whether it's in the body, in the mind, in situations, we close off to what's uncomfortable, close off to what's painful, and it closes us off to half of life. Working with pain in your sitting practice is a very good way of beginning to reverse that process, of getting the mind okay and soft and relaxed behind things that are unpleasant. Being allowing, being soft, being accepting. Another very skillful quality of mind in working with pain is a sense of humor. Not only in working with pain, in working with life. Can we smile? Can we smile at ourselves, smile at the situation? There's one suggestion that was made by a Vietnamese monk teaching in Los Angeles. 
which I would like to suggest that you do literally, not metaphorically. And that is to practice with a half smile. Just when you're sitting or walking, have a half smile. Right now. Try it. (laughs) Now that's a full smile. (laughs) Just, Just a half smile. It's quite amazing how I don't know whether the muscles in the face affect the brain. <laughs> Something goes on, but the half smile definitely lightens things. You know, and so instead of walking around with that somberness or heaviness, uh, taking oneself so seriously, it just puts a quality of spaciousness into our experience. There are times when things get so intense, so unbearably intense, that the only thing left to do is to smile, to see the ludicrousness of the situation. There was a time when I was sitting with Goenkaji in India. He had us sit, take these vow hours of not moving. And when I first started sitting, by the end of the day, my knee was like pounding a nail through the knee, screaming pain. And what he would do is start off the sitting and then go off to his room, which was just off the meditation hall, and read his newspaper and chomp on an apple and drink his tea, all of which you could hear in the meditation hall. It infuriated me. Here I was sitting with this intense pain which he was causing. (laughs) And he wasn't even sitting there with me. You know, he was off having a good time. And so all of this was going on. There was the intense pain and there was the real anger in my mind and the violence and the screaming going on. All that was left was to see how humorous I was. And as soon as I could flip into that mode, the whole situation became much more acceptable. It was still intense, but it was okay. So don't forget your sense of humor, because it's very helpful. Being accepting, being allowing, keeping a sense of humor, being patient. Patience is one of the perfections, it's one of the paramis of Buddhahood. And I'm sure you've had a sense by now of the importance and the value of patience in practice. And it was so interesting coming back to America after having been in India for so many years. just looking at kind of New Age magazines and you know, what was being offered, and one of the first things I saw were Enlightenment weekends. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, go for a weekend and get enlightened, and, and so much the American mentality, you know, of everything quick and fast. And, but real spiritual practice isn't like that. It's, it's really an evolution of a lifetime, and perhaps many lifetimes. Practice is for a life. When you have that perspective on practice, it very much helps us to stay balanced and patient behind all the ups and downs. The quality of one particular sitting, a lot of pain or a lot of restlessness, uh, very collected and cool, we're just there with it. We don't get attached if it's wonderful, we don't get depressed if it's difficult, with the understanding that practice is for a long time. 
Many of the stories we've told of the Buddha and his teaching have to do with his uttering one verse and his ever listening getting enlightened. There are just as many stories on the other side. One in particular in which one monk was undertook the walking meditation, that was his practice, and he walked for 60 years. It took him 60 years to to penetrate to the depths of the Dharma. And it's said that as he was walking, if ever he took a step that wasn't mindful, he walked back and took it over again. There's a lot of patience. 60 years of walking practice. Time is not a factor in spiritual practice. It's an irrelevant consideration. It has to do with our ability to relate to each moment with a skillful mind, with an open mind. Patience is a very big help. The last quality that I'd like to talk about tonight, which is it's really at the heart of the practice, is the quality of trust. There's no one word in English which expresses the meaning of the Pali word, sadha. It's faith, it's confidence, it's trust, it's all of those components. And it's one of the spiritual faculties. There's faith and effort and mindfulness and concentration and wisdom. These are the five spiritual faculties that have to be brought to maturity. Trust is listed first because it's the foundation, it's the basis for our ongoing practice. Trust in one. There are different kinds of trust. One kind of trust is trust in the moment. Trust in the moment's experience. Now we took, on the first night, a few nights ago, we took refuge in the Dharma. What that means is, we take refuge in the truth. What's the truth? It's not some abstract principle. The truth is the experience of each moment. What is the truth of this moment? If there's pain, if there's a painful sensation, that's the Dharma of that moment. Have we really taken refuge in that? Or do we take refuge only in some Dharmas? I'll take refuge in the pleasant Dharmas and not in the unpleasant that doesn't work. Taking refuge in the truth, in the Dharma, means that we're willing, we're making that commitment to be open, to be accepting of every moment's gift. And sometimes it's pleasant and sometimes it's unpleasant. But that's our challenge, that's our commitment, that we're willing to experience that. There's a quality of trust which develops from our, from our ability to stay right there with whatever's happening. That's one kind of trust. Another kind of trust has to do with the trust of the direction of practice. And this is a little tricky to understand because 
The word direction implies time and space, as if we're going from here to there, and we're trusting the direction. And that's not the kind of trust or direction that I mean. Trust in this sense, confidence, faith, is the faith in the direction of understanding. A couple of years ago, I was back in Asia, I was in Sri Lanka, and just sort of walking around some of the cities. And as often happens in Asia, it's so overpopulated that almost wherever you are, you have this sense of literally a sea of humanity, of bodies, just surrounded all the time by masses and masses and masses of people. One day, as I was just in the middle and part of this swirling mass, an image came to my mind. It was really the image of the wheel of samsara. Now, how people get caught up in their lives, being born, living out their lives, reacting, loving, hating, grasping, condemning, being comfortable, being uncomfortable, dying, being reborn, going through that same cycle. And the sense of the circularity, the not getting any place, going around and around, driven by the conditioning of mind, by the habits of mind, those very habits of clinging and grasping which keep this whole wheel going. And then reflecting on the power and the beauty of that practice of dharma, of truth, which allows us to come to the sense of direction in our unfolding lives. So instead of simply circling around on this wheel of desire and aversion, it's possible actually to settle back into ourselves and to trust the direction of understanding. That's the kind of trust that I mean. It's not a direction of going anyplace, it's a direction of opening to what's true. Through the Dharma practice, we begin to get a sense, and it's, it's very precious, of a context of meaning in our lives. Instead of simply living out patterns of conditioning, through a deepening of understanding, you can begin to see the unfolding in the context of a meaning, of a purpose. And the purpose is one, the direction is one, of deepening wisdom, deepening awareness. And that's not going anyplace. It's not a direction out in time or space. It's a direction back inside. So this trust of the moment, trust of the moment's experience, trust of the direction, There's one other kind of trust that's very important to understand and practice, and it's the trust of the unfolding process. The ability to settle back and let things unfold in a natural, organic way. You see how difficult it is, how the mind loves to interfere. 
loves to manipulate, loves to direct. If only I could make this a little better. And it's always jumping in and trying to take control. It's very difficult to learn how to settle back with a total trust of the unfolding process, simply letting it happen. One of the mechanisms the mind uses to block this kind of trust has to do with taking some past experience that we liked, felt good about, and project that into the future and try to get it again. So yesterday you had a wonderful sitting and you were clear and your mind was luminous and you were on the verge of enlightenment and then it went away and now you're sitting full of tension and full of pain and the mind starts thinking, if only I could get that back. If only somehow I could recreate that experience, then my practice would be going along fine. That's not a correct understanding. And it's not the development of trust. That's like saying, winter is a mistake, and if only I could get summer back. And many people do think that. (laughs) Winter is not a mistake. (laughs) It's supposed to be here. And it's following its own unfolding, its own evolution. What we're experiencing is not a mistake. And if we can let go of that idea that we know what's supposed to be happening, and trying to get back something that we think would be better or nicer or more pleasant, if we can let go of that idea, then it becomes a much simpler matter of settling back with that quality of trust. Practice becomes so much more effortless. Sit back, open to whatever is happening. It's pleasant, it's painful, it doesn't matter. In that sense, there's no anticipation of what comes next. Because if we're living our lives and the practice in the retreat is just a microcosm of how we live our lives, if we're living our lives constantly planning and anticipating of how we would like it to be, we really are prisoners of our own past experience. That is, we're taking something from our past experience and thinking, oh, that would be nice to happen. Rather, to realize that each moment comes out of the unknown. (coughs) To begin to relate to the unknown with trust rather than with fear. There's one tribe in Africa which does a wonderful thing with time and space. They visualize or imagine the past in front of them and the future behind them because the past they can see and the future they can't. And so they're just backing into the future. No anticipation, no expectation because they don't know what's coming. We don't know what's coming either, but we think we do. We put the future ahead of us. See if, as you sit, you can turn yourself around. 
So instead of sitting, anticipating the next moment, sit and back into the next moment. And in that movement of backing into the next moment, there's no anticipation, there's no clinging, there's no expectation because we don't know what's happening. We don't know what's coming next. In that, in that way of relating, it's a true beginner's mind. settle into each moment's experience. That's what our practice is about. Do you have any questions about pain, about trust, about your practice? How do you forfeit it? Interviews happen on many levels. Sometimes it's a communication of what's been happening. And with some feedback or adjustment, if it feels like the relationship to that experience has been uh, off track. So that's one level that interviews happen on. Another level is an energy exchange. You know, just to come in and it's on this level, the content of the words don't even matter, right? because it's just, it's an energy interchange, right? and that's the value of it, or the benefit of it. Sometimes interviews function simply as a reflection, just act as a mirror. You know, so when we come in, and since we don't have a particular investment you know, the same investment that we have about our own minds. We don't have that in your mind. It's easy to just kind of sit there and reflect back what's going on in order so that it's seen more clearly. So what I'm saying is basically no need to have any particular model of what should or shouldn't happen in an interview. 
just to go in and, and whatever happens is fine because it can function in many ways. Okay, Jack is going to talk more about drowsiness tomorrow night, but just one suggestion which may not be apparent. He's an expert. (laughs) (laughs) One of the most startling things discoveries that I made about tiredness in practice was that a good part of it came from my attachment to being wakeful. That is, I was feeling tired, especially when working with really cutting sleep down, just playing that edge a lot. So I'd be sitting and I would really be tired. And I saw that I was so desperately attached to being wakeful and so fearful of that state of being tired that I was getting exhausted, you know, in that struggle. And one of my teachers suggested to just relax and to keep sitting, not to lie down, but that if I fall asleep, I'm sitting, never mind, let it happen. And I was like, that was shocking, you know, like permission to sleep while you're meditating. But what happened was that just by that permission, I stopped the struggle. I stopped fighting with it, and I relaxed into the feeling of tiredness. Do you know the state sometimes just before you fall asleep? Well, actually, the mind is quite concentrated, very relaxed, and just kind of about to drift off. That state, and and there's quite a bit of wisdom and clarity that can be in that state, actually becomes more accessible. When you're sitting and you're tired and you simply allow yourself to go into it rather than fight with it. And you might also fall asleep. And if you fall asleep, fine. Whenever it is, you kind of wake up, you'll feel refreshed anyway. Right. I, I didn't fall asleep once. And it was so amazing to me because I was so tired. I just dropped into this very relaxed state. And it was in particularly insightful because when you're tired, your defenses are also tired. And it's like your mind doesn't have the same energy to be putting out you know, all the judgments and all the comments and all the defensiveness. And it's in that sense that it can be very concentrating and illuminating. So it's just to take a look at to what degree the struggle with it is compounding it.
Well, it's clear that in any situation, rest is needed. You know, even without long-term pain, just living our lives. And certainly when people are in a lot of pain, um, it's necessary to, to have enough rest so that the mind doesn't get too tired. Um, the attitude of working with it is just the same, though, in terms of learning to soften, learning to be allowing. And it takes practice. You know, we might find that we can be with it for some time, and then we start to lose it. The alternative to that, sort of what, what, what one can do to rest for a while, is simply to distract the mind. You know, so do some other activity or whatever, something that takes the mind off the pain. That's not learning how to deal with it any better, but it's kind of giving the mind a little rest until it can come back again and practice being with it. There was one time in my practice, long time, months and months and months of intensive practice, where I had the most incredible head pain. It just felt like there was a vice around my neck, my head, that was getting tighter and tighter. And I'd be sitting and thinking, this can't get worse. And the next sitting, <coughs> you know, a little tighter. And after a while, it started happening outside of my sitting. You know, sitting, walking, not practicing, it was the same pain going on. I really thought something was wrong. I went to doctors and eye doctors and the whole trip, nothing. And so I just had to learn to be with it. And it was, it was continuous and very intense. It developed very deep concentration. It demanded deep concentration. Right, just to be there and to keep softening, to keep allowing. And it took months. And one day I got up and started sitting, and it's as if it had peaked. And from that sitting on, it just got less and less and less and less until it went away. We're carrying, in the, in the Pali Sanskrit word, it's sankharas. Sankharas means accumulated impressions. You know, and some of our sankharas are very light. One, one teacher uses the example of drawing a line on water. You know, you just draw it and it's gone. It's not a lasting impression. There's another level of sankhara that's like a line in sand that's there for a day and then the wind blows it and it's erased. And other sankharas are like lines etched in stone. They take a long time. They'll wear away too. But it takes a while. Some of our sankharas are like that. They're very deep. What's terribly important to understand in practice is that what's happening doesn't matter. It's how we're relating to it. So even if deep sankharas are coming up, these deep impressions, these deep energy patterns of holding, it's fine. It's not that we have to get rid of them in order for our practice to deepen. Because the practice deepens through our relationship to that experience. Can we be soft? Can we be allowing? Can we be balanced? Enlightenment happens out of the balance of mind. 
not of clearing up our sankharas. And so whatever it is that's arising, fine. That's what we can work on to become more balanced. Do you create pain or do you become aware of pain that being lost in thought didn't allow you to feel? I create pain. How do you know? Because it wasn't there a moment before. No, but a moment before you were lost in thought. So how do you know? Well, the moment before I was lost in thought, the pain. (laughs) (laughs) In other words, words, you think you know what's happening of where things come from. No, it. What I'm saying is that the being lost in thought is really very momentary. No, I understand that. What I'm saying is that there's no knowing where that pain comes from. Oh, okay. Well, that I only know it in terms of time. Right. It seems to be right. that right. sequence. Right. And it keeps getting. It's a repetitive pattern, so it's begun to seem as if it's cause and effect. And my model, which is that. I'm addicted to thinking and it's a withdrawal symptom doesn't hurt, you know. I mean Is the model helpful? Not really. <laughs> I'd let go of the model. <laughs> well what I'm, what I'm really interested in is how to deal with pain. And am I creating the pain unnecessarily? Uh, yeah, that's really how to deal with the pain is everything I said tonight. Okay. Right. Soft and relaxed and open and trusting and loving and kind. <laughs> right. All those ways of being nice to it. If your relationship to the thought right, is the same as your relationship to the pain, that is not hammering it, not clubbing it, not that. The letting go of the thought then is not creating the pain. It could be that if you have a very aggressive attitude towards thoughts and are chomping it, that attitude could definitely cause tension. So if it's not that, then it's just stuff coming from wherever, who knows? And it doesn't matter, right? because that's what's presenting itself in the moment. The question then is, how do we relate to it? You know, one, sort of one last uh, suggestion, really. When we sit and we become more sensitized to this energy field, we begin to feel the knots and the holding and the tension. 
very often we get into a project mentality. Well, this sitting, I'm going to work on the tension in my neck. And I'm going to really work on that, and so that one will go away. Or the tension in my back. One of the things that perhaps you've noticed, and will if you continue to pay attention, is that our thinking mind has such a limited understanding of this energy system. And you can think that, okay, I'm going to work on this tension and massage it with my mind and you know, tell myself whatever. And it may be that that tension up here is actually being held by a sensation in the elbow. There are connections, there are relationships in the body that we simply have no idea about. But the body knows. And so the more we can settle back and simply let things unfold, as I hope you've gotten some idea, some sense. And sometimes there's a, it's like, you know, the, those children's games of connecting the dots. Sometimes the attention will just go from place to place to place to place without any ostensible pattern. And yet in that movement, in that natural movement of the mind, the whole knot is being untied. And there would have been no way for us to know that. But there's a natural wisdom in this process. And so if we can take ourselves out of the way and simply settle back and allow it to unfold, allow it to release, allow it to open, the whole process comes to a state of balance. So really what we're practicing is non-interfering awareness. Just to be here, to let what happens happen, to be attentive, no attachment, no resistance, no identification with it, just to let the unfolding occur in its own way. Thank you. Good luck.